A woman knelt before a new gravestone to pour her sister's ashes into the earth. She felt an overwhelming loneliness until a friend knelt beside her. Later, she wrote this poem to her sister who died. It is titled, Gesture. In Ohio farmland, among weathered, illegible markers from a century before, I took your ashes, unsealed the cardboard box, untied the plastic bag, prepared to pour them in the grave. I was afraid I'd recognize a bone or tooth, something that would cast me to frozen grief as I remembered the one who was my childhood double, the sister, my sister, body so like my own. As I said the prayers and knelt to pour, a friend from our youth stepped forward, knelt by me in the straggled grass, holding out her open hands under the stream of falling ash. Seldom have I beheld such a beautiful salute, warming me entirely back to the joy of who you were, welcoming your body's dust as one would greet a splash of heaven, a rain of blessing, a shower of gold. Our gospel lesson for this Sunday speaks of a beautiful gesture given to Jesus in the last days of his life. It seems it was an impromptu action that occurred to Mary of Bethany when Jesus visited her home. Mary probably did not intend her anointing to be more than an act of welcome. But her gracious act had far-reaching implications, just as we may do something on the spur of the moment only to learn years later that it had a powerful effect on others. It's especially so when the impulse comes from the heart, from a place of gratitude and generosity. In our collect for today, the fifth Sunday of Lent, we pray that God may bring to order our unruly wills and affections so that among the swift and varied changes all around us, our hearts may be fixed where true joys are to be found. As we all know, the world is full of distraction, much delightful, some horrendous, most mundane. And our prayer today is one we could use for any time to remind us of the essentials of our faith and help us touch the locus where our deepest happiness is to be found. Gestures and acts such as that of Mary of Bethany and the friend at the gravesite spring from awareness of what is essential and the place where true joys are to be found. Our other lessons for this Sunday will help us further explicate the gospel lesson. Our first lesson from Isaiah reminds us of the escape of the Hebrew slaves through the Red Sea when the waters briefly parted and they walked across on dry land. The Egyptian chariot, and horse, army, and warrior who pursued them were all folded back under the returning waters. They were quenched like a wick. God had broke, brought the Hebrews out of bondage. We often forget that our God is a God of liberation who wants to set the captives free. In the first of the commandments, God reminds us of this. God is synonymous with liberation and Isaiah continues with God's proclamation that the Holy One is about to do a new thing, making a way in the wilderness, a river in the desert, 
and giving drink to the golden to the chosen people that they might declare God's praise. On the fifth Sunday of Lent, it's appropriate that we're reminded of the first Passover of the Jews when the angel of death passed over the Hebrews, allowing them to escape the plagues that befell Egypt and move on to the promised land. As we now approach the second Passover, the queen of feasts known as Easter, when Jesus overcame death uh, and rose to new life, God is continuing to set the captives free. Sin and death are forms of captivity. The association with Passover is made more clear on Monday, Thursday, when we commemorate that Jesus shared the Passover with his friends. And the Latin word for Easter, Pascha, is closer to Passover than our English word, and it's still heard in the Spanish Pasqua and the French Pâques and other Romance languages. The psalm appointed for this Sunday sings of the joy when God restored the fortunes of Zion and the people laughed and shouted with joy. Life was so transformed that the people thought they were dreaming. Those who had wept now sang, and those who had gone out weeping with their seed stock came back shouldering a great harvest. With such a restoration, how can we keep from singing? In Paul's letter to the Philippians, the apostle states his credentials as a Jew worthy of great respect. But then he says that everything changed. His life was turned upside down and inside out when he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. Suddenly, all that had been his pride and confidence, his trappings of power and prestige, shifted. And he realized that it was nothing compared to the riches he had glimpsed in that transforming moment with Jesus. He saw a new possibility for his life that he counted above all that he had valued in the past. He saw that all of his achievement, his bootstrapping accomplishment, and family status crumbled to dust when he beheld the beauty and grace that shone from the crucified and resurrected Christ who called to him. And he wanted to follow and live as Christ in order to touch the wonder that he had beheld. His world had changed irrevocably. As Isaac Watts phrased so simply and beautifully, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Our gospel lesson from John's gospel reminds us of the Passover by telling us that six days before Jesus would celebrate with his disciples in the upper room, he goes to visit Bethany, the home of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Earlier in John's gospel, the evangelist tells us that Jesus loved them. Their friendship is clearly significant to Jesus, and it's important to remember that among his close associates, his disciples and followers, there are these three siblings that he loves. There are several stories in the Gospels about Martha and Mary and Lazarus. In Luke's Gospel, we come to see the difference between the two sisters. Martha is a superb housekeeper and hostess. Mary is interested in ideas. On one visit, Martha was very busy, and Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet listening. Martha asked Jesus to tell Mary to help her, and Jesus responded by telling her that Mary had chosen the better part. 
We also know of the family because of the death of Lazarus. Jesus had visited several days after the death, and Martha said that if he had been there, her brother would not have died. She then made a startling confession to Jesus, recognizing him as the Christ, the Son of God who was coming into the world. Jesus was moved by the grief and faith of the sisters, and he raised Lazarus from the dead. That miracle brought many to believe in Jesus, but it also brought many to seek to end his life. As you recall, John the Baptist had recently been killed, and prophets were not safe in Roman-occupied Palestine. It was not long after the raising of Lazarus that our story takes place. Lazarus is among those who are at the table when Jesus comes. And I suspect that Lazarus was a key player in the story, even though he's only mentioned as present and has no obvious part in the action. Lazarus is a remarkable figure in the ancient world because he is one of the very few who ever returned from the dead. With today's modern medicine and knowledge, we've been able to revive and resuscitate a number of people who have died, but such was not the case in the first century. I recall the Right Reverend John Richards, Bishop of St. David's in Wales, who befriended me the year I spent in seminary in Aberystwyth, Wales. On one of our countryside walks, he told me that as a boy, he had drowned in the river, in the Istwith River, and had been pulled out and revived. He recalled the terrible pain as water was expelled from his lungs and air forced in. And he said that he was frustrated because he remembered he was going to the most beautiful city. And suddenly he was lying on a bank, hurting terribly with concerned faces looking down at him. He said that after that experience, he was never afraid to die. Almost all who have died and returned speak of a beckoning light and of being drawn to it, sometimes a figure ahead of them. For Lazarus, I suspect that the beckoning light and figure were actually Jesus calling him back to this world. It's likely that he shared what happened to him with his sisters. It was a huge event and one that changed many lives. The Gospels tell us that the authorities were also seeking to kill Lazarus because the very fact of his life was now a testimony to the power of Jesus. And no doubt he, as well as Martha and Mary, were aware that they were living in precarious times. The times were tense, and the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus no longer went about the countryside openly. Both the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities were watching for Jesus and wondering if he would go to Jerusalem for the Passover. Fully aware that there were plots afoot to take his life, Jesus visited with his friends. Martha served the meal while Lazarus sat at the table with some of his disciples. Mary, being thoughtful and imaginative, took a pound of fragrant and expensive spikenard ointment and anointed the feet of Jesus, wiping the excess away with her hair. It was an astonishing thing to do a gesture of hospitality and love. While it was the custom of the times for guests to have their feet washed when they entered a home, or for guests to have a cool and fragrant oil poured on their heads or feet, 
It was a servant or a slave who did the washing or anointing, not the host or hostess. And they were never expected to use their hair as a towel for the guest's feet. Mary's gesture was not only of welcome, but also one of humility. And it may have been the graciousness of her act that inspired Jesus to wash the feet of his disciples several days later. Judas Iscariot was a dark intruder in the story of Jesus with the happy and generous family. Judas criticizes Mary for using such expensive ointment, which cost about 90 pieces of silver. Ironically, it was about three times what Judas was paid for his betrayal. But this night, he asked why the extravagant ointment wasn't sold and the money given to the poor. Jesus countered him, saying, let her alone. Let her keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. It is a poignant and lonely response. The shadow Judas cast has spread across the table. Jesus, Jesus is suggesting Mary save some of the exquisite perfumed ointment, ointment for his burial. The moment has turned. From the golden and gracious gesture of humility and generosity, the dark thread of betrayal begins to weave into the tapestry to come. But the message for us has survived through the centuries. When we, like Mary of Bethany or the friend at the gravesite, feel truly called to express our love and appreciation, let us do it. We may not have another chance, and it may echo into lives we will never know. In Mark's gospel, Jesus says even more of the gift of that anointing at Bethany. He tells those present, she has done a beautiful thing. And then adds, truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in all the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And so it is. And so it will be. Amen.